Hi, good morning. My name is Sherry Moulton. Um, many of you I know, and many of you I don't know. So it's a joy to be with you here this morning. Forgive my nervousness. This is not my place that I normally be. But it's good to be here in the house of the Lord. Amen. We're going to be reading today out of Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 36. If you have your Bibles, um, please, I welcome you to open them and read. If not, please read along with me in the screen. Let's look in to see what's happening in the story today. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled both debts. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who has a bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water. For my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thank you very much, Sherry, and uh, good morning. That's a powerful story, isn't it? Uh, so thank you, Sherry, for reading that in such a powerful way. Uh, we are uh, looking at this week at our last week on the series called That's a Good Question. And uh, just a couple of words about the series before we dive into today's question and this wonderful, powerful story. Um, thank you for all the, the feedback you've been given. I've been get, getting kind of mixed 
uh, feedback week by week on each of the questions we've been going through. Uh, some of y'all have said, man, you hit the nail right on the head. It, it really answered the question and it spoke to me. Others of you every week are like, I think you missed the nail and hit your finger. And, uh, you know, maybe didn't quite uh, get to the question the way I thought that you should. Uh, both kinds of feedback actually are extremely helpful. And, and I've been thinking about kind of why, why such mixed reactions to this series. And I think there's a few reasons. Uh, and I want to just say a couple of words about that. First of all, we really don't think we can answer any of these questions in a one sermon, right? In, in a 40-minute or less sermon. These, these questions, each of them, would require several conversations over time. And that's why we're saying, you know, we don't just want to have a series once a year or so called That's a Good Question. We want to be a church where any honest question can be brought without any fear of shame, and we will give you as best we can over time an honest answer from the Bible to that question. So, you know, it simply can't be done in one in one uh, single sermon. Also, I think even the questions themselves, the way they're worded, can be very, very uh, challenging because you hear a question and everybody has a different idea of even what the question means, right? And then, you know, how should, you know, Stan answer this or how should Matt or others answer these questions? Everybody, again, has a very different idea of exactly how that should go. And so this morning, I'm going to try to do a little bit better job maybe than I've done in the past few weeks of letting you know up front what I think the question means and where it's coming from and then exactly how I'm trying to get us to an answer to, or at least part of an answer, a start of an answer. Let's, let's put it that way. So this morning, uh, the, the question is, is God too strict? Is God too strict? What I'm trying to get at here is a variety of questions that really are trying to understand how does God's law square with his love and grace and forgiveness? Uh, how does God's standards in my life square with this idea that God is loving and accepting and welcoming? Do those two things go together at all? Can, can law and restriction and freedom coexist together? Now, I think different people ask this question in different ways. Uh, you may be someone, for example, who doesn't yet follow Jesus. And the way that you might ask that question is, if I become a Christian, am I going to have to become a fuddy-duddy, no fun, you know, killjoy, you know, like some of the other Christians that I know? That might be, be one way that you ask that question. Really what you're saying is, are God's standards, is Christianity in the Bible just too strict to live by? On the other hand, you might be here and you already are following Jesus, but you're asking this question in a slightly different way. I'm trying to follow God's commands, but time and again, you might say, I keep falling down. I keep, I keep stumbling. And every day, it's like the weight and burden of obedience gets heavier. And I feel more and more guilt. Is there ever going to be a time when I'm free from that? Is the Christian life just one long burden full of guilt, or is there something better to it? That's what I mean by, is God too strict? And I want to try to help us understand that that is not the case if we understand truly the kind of heart that God has in giving restrictions. If we understand why God gives restrictions, then we'll understand that rules and restrictions and freedom and love and grace and all that can perfectly go together with the Lord. But I know that's simply not kind of the, that's not the most popular point of view in our society and culture. I think we have to admit right up front. Most of us assume freedom rules just can't be married. At, at the end of the uh, the movie I, Robot, if you've ever seen that with Will Smith several years ago. The very last scene, the robot who has a relationship, you know, strikes up a friendship with Will Smith's character, says, my purpose, the reason why I was put together has been completed, and so now I don't know what to do. And remember what Will Smith's character says? Well, you're just going to have to do like the rest of us, he says. Every one of us has to wake up every day and just figure it out. 
After all, he says, that's what it means to be really free. Do you hear it? Do you hear the problem in that? But I think they're tapping into something that's very deep in our hearts and very deep in our society. If there's a purpose overall which gives me certain boundaries and rules, that can't be really freedom. If there's no purpose and no boundaries, if I can just do whatever I want whenever I want, there's real freedom. Or, as Casey Musgrave says, when the straight and narrow gets a little too straight, follow your arrow wherever it leads. You know that song? When the straight and narrow gets too straight, follow your arrow wherever it leads. Just follow your heart. Don't let rules and regulations bog you down. And yet, when you look at this powerful story from Luke chapter, chapter 7, or chapter 8, excuse me, well, wait a minute, 7, sorry. <laughs> my, my, my Bible flipped. In Luke chapter 7, when you see this powerful story of what's got to be the most awkward dinner party in history, I think everybody can agree this is an awkward dinner party, what you see is the heart of God in love for people like me and you. And that kind of God who loves people like me and you that deeply must be giving his commandments for good and not for evil whatever those commandments happen to be. Let's look at that today in three ways. If you'll look at your worship bulletin, I want you to see that Jesus shows God's restrictions are given first because of his love for us. We want to see that. Secondly, God's restrictions or his laws are given to show us how to love him and others. And then finally, I want you to see that God's restrictions are given to show us the way to true freedom, to really show us what it's like to have a heart that is set free for God, okay? So first of all, God gives his restrictions out of love for us. Now, here, here's where the, really the rub of the problem is because it never feels like love when someone restricts you. Isn't that right? Have you ever had someone tell you no ever in your life? Of course you have. How does that feel? Have you ever had someone try to persuade you not to do something you really, really wanted to do? How does that feel? I mean, almost always, if you're like me, when someone does that, my immediate reaction is, man, you hate me. You must really hate me to stand in the way of the thing that I really want. But yet, follow me here, almost all of us have also had this other experience where we thought at the beginning, you must hate me because you're telling me no or standing in my way. But then we thought about it a minute. <laughs> then we actually had a conversation with that person. And what we realized was, they're not against me, they don't hate me, they just happen to have maybe greater insight into who I am and what my decisions might lead to. And because of their greater insight, they are helping correct some faulty understanding to keep me from danger. Well, I think something very similar happens every time we hear God say no. Or every time on the other side we hear God say, yes, do that when we don't want to do it, which when you read the Bible, that happens all the time. God's always telling us no when we want him to say yes. God's always telling us yes when we want him to say no. And right away we assume, man, God must be really against us. He must be, he must be really hard on people. He must be too strict. But actually, if you look at the Bible, it says that idea is the oldest lie on record. It's the oldest lie that people have ever bought into. It's the oldest lie that's ever been told in human history. Genesis chapter 3, the, uh, the second page of the Bible, Adam and Eve are living the good life, literally in paradise. Everything's good between them and God. Everything is great and no shame, no abuse, no sin between them and each other. Everything's great even with creation. 
They're living in a garden. They're farming, and everything is working well. No droughts. None of that stuff is happening yet. And yet, Satan, in the form of a serpent, slithers up to Eve. And what does he tell her? Paraphrase, Eve, God is holding out on you. God is out to get you. He knows if you eat the fruit of that tree that he told you not to eat, he knows at that moment you're going to become like him, and he doesn't want that to happen, Eve. You need to not listen to God and follow your own arrow wherever it points. The Bible says that's actually the the oldest lie that has ever been sold and ever been bought by, by human beings. But yet, again, when we come to this story and we see God dealing with a sinful woman at a dinner party, What we see is the same thing that Adam and Eve quickly learned after they believed that lie. Right as they they, they barreled over God's commandments and they began to tumble down the cliff that was the fall of man, they immediately realized, wait a minute, God didn't mean those restrictions for our harm. He meant them for our good. He was trying to guide us to life, not keep us away from life. Have any of y'all ever driven on a mountain road? Uh, For me, as a Florida boy, that's a very scary experience. You know, I'm not into that very much, but a few times in my life I've done it. And every time I've been very glad that someone took the time and the money and the effort to build guardrails all along those roads. And there's there's a way that you could twist it and say, man, that's unfair. That guardrail is unfair. Because I want to I drive over there. Why do I have to drive here? It's keeping me away from fun. And yet, every one of us, if we think about it a minute, can recognize that guardrail is meant to keep you in the fun. <laughs> that guardrail is meant to keep you in the good life. And that's, that's what Adam and Eve discovered very quickly. And that's what everybody at this dinner party is discovering as well. Look at what happens. This is how the dinner party gets really awkward. Uh, in verse 36, it tells us Jesus has been invited by Simon, a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee was a very conservative, very religious person. He had a reputation for knowing God's law very well and keeping God's law in its entirety. And probably the way things worked back then, everybody at his house for the dinner party was probably just like him. They didn't really, Pharisees didn't mix with commoners or with sinners very much. So everybody was like, you know, towing the line of the law, so to speak. And in comes this woman in verse 37. It says here, she was a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life. That town, like all the other towns of the time, was a small town. And y'all, we live in a small town. We, we know how things happen. You know how once you live a sinful life, it's really hard to die down that, <laughs> that reputation, isn't it, in a small town? This woman had that. Most scholars will tell you that when it says she lived a sinful life, it probably means she was a woman of the night. She was a prostitute. And she walks into this very conservative, very religious dinner party with Jesus sitting with all these very self-righteous people, and she makes it really, really awkward in verse 38. And I love how Luke, who writes this, just like puts it in slow motion and shows us like step at a time just how awkward it's getting. It says, first, she stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping. Now, that's awkward enough because the weeping there is not like, you know, she had one tear fall down. This is like weeping you can hear. In fact, so many tears are falling, it tells us in the next part of that sentence that she began to wet Jesus' feet with her tears. That's how much tears are coming down. And then, on top of it all, she gets down on her knees at Jesus' feet and begins to take down her long hair so that she can dry off the tears from his feet. Now, let me tell you, back then, again, 
Most ladies did not take down their hair in public. It was a big faux pas. The only people who did that were people with the reputation like this woman. And yet right here in the middle of this conservative religious dinner party, she's taking her hair down, wiping Jesus' feet with it. And then, next thing in the slow motion, she begins to kiss his feet. And then she breaks open a bottle of perfume and begins to pour it over his feet, filling the room with the scent of that perfume. Now, can you imagine? You could cut the the air with a knife in that room, couldn't you? Can you imagine what was going through everyone's mind? Well, you don't have to imagine because in verse 39, it tells you what at least Simon was thinking. This Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he thought, he would know who is touching him. He would know what kind of woman this is, that she's a sinner, and he would stop it. But look at what's going on here. Jesus does not do anything to stop it. He does not say a word to try to distance himself from this woman. Do you see that and notice it? Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm embarrassed in public, I can't keep my mouth shut about it, right? (laughs) Like, have you ever, like, fallen down in public or something, like, really embarrassing? What do you do? Immediately, you try to remove the embarrassment. You try to explain yourself away. Oh, well, I slipped over that thing, right? I I tripped. You're trying to explain yourself out of the embarrassment. And yet, look at the glory of this. Jesus seems to not be embarrassed at all of this woman. It doesn't embarrass him. He welcomes the most sinful woman in town to be publicly associated with him. Now, what does this tell us? Well, you got to remember that Jesus is not just a, just a religious teacher telling us some good moral lessons. You know, he's not just a prophet telling us about the future. Jesus is God telling us about the heart of the God who made us. What is this telling us? That Jesus the one who is very serious about sin. I mean, he's very serious about sin. He talks about judgment more than anybody else in the Bible. He talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible and sin more than anybody else. He's very serious about sin, but yet at the same time, he is willing to be a friend of sinners. And what that's showing us is that the God who made us, the God who loves us and who has always taken care of us, is not a God in any way who's out to get us. After all, if Jesus is willing to be publicly associated with this woman after she has run right over all of, all of God's guardrails, <laughs> after she has already tumbled down the cliff and is on the bottom there, everything broken up, and yet he's willing to love her, how much more do you think he loved? He loves all of us, and he loved us before we ever fell, before, when he first gave his first restriction. He loved us a ton. A God who welcomes sinners cannot be a God who gives commandments and gives restrictions simply to squeeze the life out of us. He must be a God who is trying to guide us into what is really the truly the good life. Well, one writer says it this way, Jesus' openness towards sinners in his ministry was a deliberate sign of God's welcoming grace. It was a deliberate sign of it. Jesus' preaching always declared that grace. His suffering on the cross secured that grace. And his scandalous social life, like this scene right here, his scandalous social life embodied grace in a tangible way. That's why you have somebody who, like Jesus, could say, man, sin is evil. Sin will, rock, will wreck your world. Sin deserves the judgment of God. Sin deserves hell. And yet at the same time, he has a reputation for being a friend of sinners. I mean, that doesn't seem to make sense except in Jesus. Most people who go around talking about sin and hell don't have a whole lot of sinners wanting to hang out with them. Isn't that right? 
And most of the time, people who've got sinners hanging out with them don't want to talk about sin, judgment, and hell because they usually don't really take it seriously or believe in it. In Jesus, you got both combined. In fact, in the cross of Jesus, you have both combined the most perfect way they've ever been combined. Because there, Jesus is saying, I take sin so seriously that I'm willing to be punished for it in your place. That's how, seriously, that's how serious it is. I'm willing to go to hell for you so you don't have to. But at the same time, he's saying, publicly, I don't mind being seen with you. <laughs> I don't mind hanging nearly naked on the cross, being named with your name and my name and all the sins associated with it. That's the God we serve. Now, you've got to learn. We have to learn when God tells us no, or when God tells us yes and we don't want him to say yes, we have to learn how to see that coming from the heart of a God who loves us that much. That's the way you understand the commandments of God. It can't be too strict. It must be just right. Because a God who loves me this much would have no other motivation but to bless me. Isn't that right? And so I wonder this morning, is that what you hear? Do you hear love dripping from God's commandments when he says, no, don't do that? Do you hear love when he asks you to do something hard that you don't know how in the world you're going to do and you don't really at first really want to do it? Or do you still feel like God is handcuffing you, like he's leading you into a trap? All right, that's the first thing. Uh, the commandments of God come from his love for us. Secondly, the, the restrictions of God are meant to show how we're to love God and how we're to love others. Now, this is important because almost everybody, whether you believe in Jesus or not, almost everybody would agree the ultimate way to live is to love people and to love God, right? Most people agree with that, that you could summarize all ethics. You could summarize all like how to live statements by saying, hey, just love people from the heart. But here's the problem. Most of us really are, don't really know how to love very well. <laughs> Most of us have a very bad definition of love. And because we have a bad definition of love, we're not very good at judging how good or bad we really are at love. And so normally, most people, I think, if they were asked, how good are you at loving people? They would say, oh, I'm great. I'm one of the best people at loving people that I know. <laughs> and yet, one of the great gifts of God's restrictions is he comes to burst the bubble of our self-assurance. And that's exactly what he does in this story to Simon. See, Simon's the man that invited Jesus over, the Pharisee. He's the one that thought, man, if Jesus is letting this woman touch him, he must not be a prophet. There's no way he can be from God because why would he let a sinner publicly associate herself with him? And look at verse 40. Jesus takes out the pen and is getting ready to pop Simon's bubble. He says, Simon, I love this. Simon, I have something to tell you. Have you ever, I mean, when do you say that to somebody? Hey, I've got something to tell you before you tell them. It's only when you know they're not going to like what you're about to say. Usually, right? Or, or they're going to be shocked at least by what you're going to say. You might want to sit down because I've got something to tell you. That, that's, what, that's what Jesus is saying to Simon. I, I've got a lesson to teach you that you desperately need to learn. Simon, I know you've got a reputation for being God's man. I know you've got a reputation for being very, very righteous. But do you think maybe that reputation is mostly self-built and human-based? rather than being a true reputation that comes from what God thinks of you? You see, this morning, I mean, what really matters about every one of us in the room is not what we think about ourselves. It's not what we think about ourselves. What matters most in this room this morning about each of us is not what other people think about us and how they judge us, good or bad. 
What matters most in all the world is what God himself thinks of each and every one of us. And the restrictions of God in the Bible given, just like we're about to see with Jesus and Simon, are meant to bring us down and show us clearly what it is that God thinks about it, or lift us up when we're really too hard on ourselves, all right? So look at what uh, Jesus does to Simon. I got something to tell you, uh, and then verse 41, he begins to tell Simon a story. Jesus is good at catching us with stories, and so he says, two people owed money to a moneylender. So you have, have a banker who has two debtors, and neither of those debtors can pay him back. Uh, one owes 500 denarii, which is about $50,000 roughly in today's money. So one man owes him $50,000. The other man owes him 50 denarii, which is about $5,000 in today's money. So both of them are significant debts. One is a lot more significant than the other. Well, this banker or moneylender does something that none of my bankers or moneylenders have ever done. <laughs> I wish they would, but, but, he, but he, this banker says, look, I know you can't pay me, so you just go and, and consider it paid in full. Go free. You don't owe me money anymore to both of these people. And so Jesus asked Simon a simple question there in verse 42. Simon, which of the two do you believe will love the moneylender or the banker more? And Simon has to say, it seems like he's reluctant, but he has to say, I suppose <laughs> it's the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. What is Jesus doing? The point that Jesus is making in this story is not, hey, Simon, you have less to forgive than this woman does. That's not the point. Actually, I think the point is the opposite. Jesus is trying to get him to see, you've got just as much problems as she does. You've got just as much to forgive, even though you've hidden it and people don't believe it about you. You're just as sinful as this woman is. I think the point is this. Simon, I want you to think about how good you are at love. And I want you to compare it to what God's commandments say about how we ought to love God and love other people. And I want you to see how far you fall short of that, even though you your whole life have thought of yourself as a very righteous person. He's wanting him to, to understand that the heart of every commandment of God is love. And that we misdefine it because very often we think of love in terms of me first. I mean, just think about the popular love songs and the popular love stories out there. I mean, almost all of them are so me first, aren't they? Like love stories are about who can I find to complete me? How does that person make me feel? How do they help me be a better person? Do you hear that? I mean, it's all me, 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 me. And yet all throughout the Bible, God is saying, look, I want, I made you to love like I love. And I don't love for my interests first. I love in order to bless those that are loved. In fact, my glory comes when you are made great and when you are glorified. That's how God loves. He invests in other people so that they would thrive. And so he calls us to do the same thing. I mean, even if you think about the Ten Commandments that way, they're like a guide to how to love in a you-first rather than a me-first way. So, you know, let's just run through them really quick. Do not have any other gods before me. Do not worship God by an image Keep my name holy, like respect my name and remember the Sabbath day and devote that one day in seven completely to me. All those commandments are about how to love God. You first, O Lord, instead of me first. Instead of God, what can you do for me? It's God, how can I serve you? On the back end of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, 
don't commit adultery, all of those are about how to love other people in a way that's you first and not me first. That's what it's all about. And so what God is doing to Simon is he's saying, Simon, here's my point. Look at this woman. Look at verse 44. Simon, look at the woman. Do you see this woman? Do you see what what she's really doing for me today? I came into your house and you didn't do anything that a normal host would do for a guest. You didn't wash my feet, which was essential in those days, in in the days of sandals. You didn't give me any oil to wash my face, which was a common practice. You didn't give me a greeting in, in the form of a kiss, which is another common practice. You didn't do any of that stuff. And this woman has been kissing my feet and anointing my feet and washing my feet with her tears and her hair. Simon, in other words, you stink at love. You stink at love. You're terrible at love. And this woman who's been following me for like two minutes has learned to be better at love than you are. Why? Because this woman has had her selfishness broken down. Her me-first heart has been brought to the end of itself. And now this woman, in spite of the sin of her past, has been driven into the arms of the God who made her, those merciful arms, and she is now just pouring out her thanksgiving, her love and her praise to the God who made her and to the God who loved her. Do you see what Jesus is doing to Simon? Simon, you think, I mean, you're like a team, you're like a football team in August. You think you're the greatest team in the country. Every team thinks they are this time of year, right? (laughs) And I'm coming with some game day reality, Simon. (laughs) I'm coming with with a clear understanding of what God thinks of you because the heart of God's commandments is not that you would learn how to toe the line so that everybody would think you're really great and religious. That's what you've been doing, Simon. That's not the heart of the law. The heart of the law is love God with all the heart, mind, soul, and strength. The heart of the law is learn to love your neighbor as yourself. Cure the selfishness in your heart by the mercy and grace of God. You see, that's what God thinks of us. That's how God sees us. That's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to cure us of our selfishness. The fact is, this is one of what my, one of my favorite writers says. He says that if you love anybody, you're going to make yourself vulnerable In other words, loving people means you're opening yourself up to a world of hurt. Can everybody say amen to that? A world of hurt you're opening yourself up to. But he says the only alternative to that is just to close yourself off selfishly. And yes, when you do that, you'll be safe. You will be safe. You will not get hurt by other people if you're selfish. However, you'll be safe like a body is safe in a coffin, he says. (laughs) The body in in the coffin is safe, but the body in the coffin is dead. And so your heart will become unbreakable, impenetrable. Nobody will be able to get in. It will become irredeemable. And so this morning, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear what Jesus Jesus wants to do for me and you, what he did for Simon. He wants us to know, look, the laws of God are not just about, hey, do this, don't do that, boring rules like the, the you know, traffic speed limit laws. That's not what the law of God is about. The law of God is about learning how to be like God. Focused on others, pouring ourselves out in love rather than everything coming back in on ourselves. And y'all, every one of us in this room falls far short of how God has loved us in Christ. And so what do we do? We turn to the mercy of God like this woman does. We run into the arms of the God who came into this world and said, I am willing 
to have my name right next to your name and to give myself to you in marriage and to have you return that back and to marry me. That leads us to our third thing. God's restrictions are about real freedom, a heart set free. What Jesus does for this woman at the very end there in verses 48 to 50 is he sends her out now wanting to do what God has called her to do. She's now going to be a person who wants to obey God. And I'm going to tell you, that's what true freedom is. In iRobot, remember Will Smith's character, what he said? If there's any kind of purpose, it can't be free because you can't do whatever you want to do. The Bible says not only is freedom necessary or is purpose necessary for freedom, but actually the only real freedom is when you want to live according to the purpose that your God designed for you. When you want his no to be no. And when you want his yes to be yes. I mean, we all know this. Do you know the difference between packing for a trip that work is sending you on versus packing for a trip that's a vacation? One stinks and it's, you know, boring and, you know, it's a drudgery. The other one's a delight. You know, driving to a work appointment versus driving to the beach. You know, on the one hand, you know, you're, you're getting angry at people who cut you off. You're white-knuckled. You're trying to get there as fast as you can. On the other hand, the windows are down. The music is up. Somebody cuts you off. You wave at them and smile. <laughs> Because you know you're going to some place you love, right? Here's what Jesus does for us. Here's what he does. He says, not only does God have a purpose for you, but it's a purpose that is so good. It's a purpose that's so ultimately fulfilling. It's a purpose that's so glorifying to God that you ought to want it. That it ought to be the thing that you're most excited about doing in your life. And so when Jesus said to this woman in verse 48... In spite of all her many sins, your sins are forgiven. What Jesus is doing is he's setting her free for life. He's setting her free to live in a whole new way. And that's the way Jesus always does with all of us, not just this woman. His forgiveness comes with a new life plan. His forgiveness comes with a new path for us to walk on. It's amazing how everybody at the dinner table in verse 49 is so confused when Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Who is this guy, they ask, who even forgives sins? You see, they understand what Jesus teaches, that forgiveness doesn't come cheap. That actually only God can forgive your sins because your sins are committed against God. It's the same thing if, you know, if Ryan punched Bob and I went up to Ryan and said, Ryan, I forgive you for punching Bob, no problem. No big deal. Bob would be mad at me, right? <laughs> because it's not my job to forgive a sin committed against Bob. And every sin we commit ultimately is against God. Only God can forgive it. Jesus is telling this woman, I am the God who made you. And not only that, the forgiveness I'm giving you cost me or will cost me very soon in the story everything I have. Jesus is saying, okay, the purpose of God is for you to love people as you love yourself and to love God with all your heart. Before I tell you to go and do that, I'm going to go first. Watch me love. And so Jesus marches his way to the cross. And when he hangs on the cross, this woman's name, it's as if this woman's name is written across his chest. It's as if your name and my name was written across Jesus' chest. He was not ashamed, not ashamed at all to be associated with me and you and our sin. Now, if Jesus loves us that much, what does that mean? Verse 50, 
your faith has saved you. Go into peace. That phrase, go into peace, it's used several times in the Bible. It always means walk and run in the path that God has set out before you. Go in his peaceful path. His shalom is the word in the Bible. His his perfectly good plan for your life. In other words, it goes like this. Because Jesus went first in loving us on the cross, we have full forgiveness of all of our sins so that now we're set free to, to follow the true new desire of our heart, which is to walk in every way that our Savior has set out before us. To follow Him everywhere He goes. That's why we call Jesus Savior and Lord. Because when He saves you and forgives you, you want to obey Him. When he saves you and forgives you, you want to obey him. Psalm 119 says this. I love it. I will run in the way of your commandments when you set my heart free. God, when you set my heart free, when you really set me free by forgiving me and accepting me and loving me, even when I didn't deserve it, then I'm going to not walk, but I'm going to run in the direction of your commandments. I want to be exactly what you want me to be. So y'all, is God too strict? Are God's commands a straight jacket? Is becoming a Christian mean you're going to become a giant killjoy? <laughs> Does being a Christian mean you have to live with an, an excessive weight of burden and guilt all the time for your sin? Well, it all depends on what you think God is like. If you believe God's a rival, that he's a king trying to control your life, but you have another plan for your life that you really like better, then yeah, of course, you're always going to think God's too strict. Everything he says is going to be a, a killjoy. It's going to be a downer. You're not going to really enjoy it. If you're like Simon and you see God as a slave driver who is only like, you know, relentlessly beating you to get you to toe the line and just look right, then yes, you're always going to feel like God is too strict. His, his commandments are burdensome. They're a weight that you cannot carry. The guilt is just never going to go away. But y'all, if you know that you are a forgiven son or daughter of God, if you know that God is your Father who forgives you freely and loves you and there's nothing you can do to ever change that love, God isn't too strict. You want to kiss the cross that he calls you to carry every day of your life. It's a little bit like when somebody falls in love. We've all seen this happen and everybody else thinks, man, they must be miserable. She's got him wrapped around her finger. He does everything she says. He's got her wrapped around his finger. She does everything he says. How terrible. Where's the freedom in that? Their freedom has died. And yet we know. What's it like to be in that relationship when you really love them? Heaven on earth. Not too strict. Heaven on earth. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you so much for your grace and mercy. Your love for us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for awkward dinner parties in the story about you. I love that you freely eat with people very much like us who have run all over the guardrails of the commandments and have crashed down many mountain roads in our lives. God, I thank you that you continue to love us and pursue us. I thank you that you continue to speak a word of forgiveness into our lives. Please set us free today, truly free to want to obey you, God. Make us a people who want to obey you. For those in this room and those listening in, those that are our friends or family members who don't yet, don't yet love you, don't yet follow you, maybe who still feel like you're 
out to get them or maybe they can't trust whether you're real or not, God, I pray you would show yourself to them. I pray you would open up all of our eyes to see that no one has ever loved us like you. No one has ever provided for us and cared for us like you. God, fill our hearts, we pray, with a desire to love you in return. And all God's people said, amen.